Hey everyone, I'm hosting a podcast training workshop in Lagos on the 18th to 19th of May, just for 15 people only. It will be two days of intensive hands-on training where you'll learn everything you need to know about ideating, planning, launching, and running your own popular podcast. I'll help you cut through the confusion and walk you step-by-step through the entire process, train you on the equipment and tools you need, and show you how to promote your podcast to a wider audience. At the end of the workshop, you will join an exclusive mastermind group where i will be coaching everyone and challenge you to launch your podcast for your business within 60 days and give you all the feedback you need to have a successful one the workshop is happening in lagos on the 18th to 19th of may just for 15 people and there are very few spaces available you can register to attend this via workshop.thestarter.com that is w-o-r-k-s-h-o-p dot t-h-e-s-t-a-r-t-a dot com or click on the link to this episode's show notes i'll see you there the next african story will be written by africans meet the people using technology innovation and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative this is building the future podcast with your host doting coming up today on building the future the md came to me and said you've got to launch our business in eight weeks time or you're fired this is my third day on the job and i was like what the problem with the farmers is not just producing. There's a problem of knowledge because there are so many people out there that will still take advantage of the farmer, even if he's doubled his production. Now we've done over 325,000 chickens and we've had mortality of less than 4%. It's what? funny though that you said uh, mortality because at the end of the day, all these chickens are killed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h dot c-o. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. 
My guest today is Onyeka Akuma, co-founder, CEO at FarmCloudy. FarmCloudy is a crowdfunding platform for small-scale farmers in Nigeria. Uh, they use technology to solve major problems for farmers by connecting them to resources, knowledge, and money to grow their farm. FarmCloudy is focused on increasing food production, impacting on thousands of small-scale farmers, and enabling youth to participate in agriculture. I got to know about the product via the email marketing. The first time I read it, I was blown away because I knew the importance of what they are doing and the impact they're going to make. I'm quite impressed by the vision and the ingenuity behind the product. FarmCloudy has raised more than a million dollars from local and international investors, including Texas, Atlanta, a startup accelerator program in the U.S. Oyeka has been a top manager in several startups in Nigeria before founding FarmCloudy. And he has a lot of insight on how technology can create efficiency in established markets and industries. Onyeka, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to have you here. So can you just explain in a simple term what FarmCrowdy does? Okay. Um, speaking about FarmCrowdy, FarmCrowdy is a digital agriculture platform that connects um, small-scale farmers with investors we like to call farm sponsors um, for the purpose of boosting food production. In layman terms, what we've done is we've identified three problems that small-scale farmers have in the country, which includes most of them have more land than they can use. So they end up underutilizing their capacity within the farms they work on. Two is small-scale farmers find it difficult to get the knowledge they need to grow the quality and quantity of food that the desired market needs. And then three is that small-scale farmers find it hard to get the right market to sell their farm produce in order to earn a decent margin from farming as a business. So in FarmCrowdy, we also identified another problem where the sponsors find it difficult locating the farmers they can trust and invest in and get the desired profit or harvest that will give them the desired return at the end of the farming cycle. And two, they do not know many of the things that they can take advantage of to secure their capital in investing in agriculture. But yet they are consistently told about what agriculture can do and they are excited about the space and want to invest in it. There's a little class of people who wanted to get involved in the agricultural sector, but they can only invest the money in it. They cannot own a farm and run it themselves. So, but they don't know how. They don't know how. Came yes. And many of them have tried it on their own. And when they're not able to give the full attention that the farm needs, they end up losing their money. And this has given a bad taste to people as it concerns agriculture and investing in that space. So in identifying that there are these two sets of people, we created Farm Crowd to connect them, where the sponsor that comes through our platform and Prior to coming to the platform, we would have met with a farmer who has, say, 2.5 acres to 5 acres of farmland, or he has 10,000 bird um, pen size and consistently has been working with 1,000 birds or consistently has been working on 2.5 acres, wasting 5 acres every year, pretty much because that's all his capacity can take him. So what we do is we identify these farmers and then we lease extra land that they have and then make these available on our website. The full cost of running that land from from plant preparation to harvest. Everything is factored into the unit cost that we then make available on our website. So it's an excess capacity of the farm that you're using rather yes. than the existing farm itself. Yes. And that is where the increase in food production then comes from. Right. Because to the farmer, he has consistently worked on 2.5 acres and that's all he can do with himself while wasting that five. Now, when we 
take the file from him in form of a lease and make it available on our website for a sponsor to come and provide everything the farmer will need to work on that particular farm, including the input like seed, fertilizer, labor, um, the expertise from technical field specialists that we can hire within Farm Crowdy as full-time employees or externally as partners to work with the farmers. All of this is paid for in the unit prices that a sponsor takes up on our website. Now, what that does for the farmer is he now has um, a partner who has provided all he needs to work on the farm. We then also extend the hand to making sure that the technical field specialist that would hold this farmer through the process of moving from 2.5 acres to 7.5 acres does it with a desired protocol that will meet the desired harvest. Right. So in a way, the farmer is almost like an investor as well, in the sense that the farmer just has a land, is providing the land, or is the farmer also involved in that excess capacity that you are providing resources He's for. actually involved in it. So okay. the way we do it is we lease the land from the farmer so he makes money first. Okay. Second is we encourage the farmer to be part of the process so that he can learn from the technical field specialists and the farm coordinators on how to grow his capacity from his initial 2.5. What happened to the, ex- the other one that he has before? It's now to the farmer to decide whether he wants to bring it on board or continue to keep that for himself. At the end of the day, our focus is that on the extra that he's giving us, this farmer makes 40% of the profit from that farm. So for the farmer, if he keeps his 2.5 acres, he's going to make 40% profit on a new farmland that he wasn't using before. That increases his income. He's going to make money from the lease. That increases his income. If he decides to work on the farm with us, he makes money from the labor cost. That increases his income. We're talking about small-scale farmers here. Yes. How do you identify that? Is it, okay, I know maybe small-scale farmer in Nigeria has maybe like two to three hectares. Yes. Do they have enough people that can work on this extended excess capacity that you are giving them? Yeah. Or is the farmer most of the time the one actually going to the field and working on these things? So most of the farmers we work with, first, there are over 38 million small-scale farmers in Nigeria. 38 million? 38 million small-scale farmers in Nigeria. 15% of the population or something like that. Yes, agriculture is the highest employer of labor. It's only second to oil in how much it contributes to the total GDP. About 102 billion US dollars comes from agriculture to Nigeria's GDP every year. We're talking about a full stack. Yes. um, From food production to... Yeah, the entire value chain. Entire value chain. Yes. But in speaking back to who works on the farm, it's still the highest employer of labor in Nigeria. And even more importantly, it's the fact that with 38 million small-scale farmers having between 2.5 acres to 7.5 acres of farmland and consistently working on 2.5 acres per season, it means over 70% of the farmland we have in Nigeria today is on Utilized. So this gives you the market opportunity of where we can play in. But just speaking to your question directly, the farmers themselves work on the farms. In addition to working on the farm, they can also bring in their families, they can bring in their cousins, their brothers, the entire family. And usually farmers have the entire families working on the farm with them. And so they can bring in their families to work with them. In selecting who the farmer will be to work on the farm, we make sure we meet with the community leaders of where these farmers are situated within and ask the community leaders to identify farmers who say they have land within that particular community. The farmer also is recommended to us by a couple 
cooperative. And so with the community leaders and the cooperative, we're sure that the farmers we're working with as the right farmer we should be working with in any location we find ourselves in. In addition to this is all the farmers hold themselves accountable because there's a message we pass on to them as soon as we get into any location. If you default, if you mess around with the harvest, it's not our money. Somebody sponsoring from somewhere you don't even know. I mean, do a farm visit one day or the other. But if you mess up the entire process, you're going to be affecting every other farmer within this location. But you're the one con- um, really controlling and working on this thing from what I'm hearing. Yep. So it's the farmer can get involved or you can run the old show yourself. The farmers, we encourage them to get involved. But if we want to run the show ourselves, I mean, we can also get external labor, but we don't do that. We like the farmers to get involved so that there's a sense of ownership in working on the farmland. And that way, they give their all to make sure it works. And in turn, what that does for us is these farmers can then become farm ambassadors for us who will then bring other farmers within their community to continue working with us in follow-up seasons. Okay, so if the farmer decide uh, for some reason when we had come into money, uh, maybe as a result of doing this stuff with you and getting 40% every six months, decide to utilize that excess capacity himself, how much would he make in terms of percentage, profit? To the farmer, if he decides to use his own money to do it, yes. I mean, I, it's going to be for the farmer over 80% if he decides to do it. Okay, again. it would double whatever it yeah. Yes. Have gotten with you. But the thing with the farmer is, where will he then sell? Because the problem with the farmer is not just producing. There's a problem of knowledge. And let's say you pass on the knowledge to them this season. But next season, so where do you then sell? And the access we provide to markets, farmers are in a way still indebted to us to make sure that they sell at the right price to make decent margin. Because there are so many people out there that will still take advantage of the farmer, even if he's doubled his production. Interesting. So the farmer, this is a good business then in the sense that the farmer is incentivized to work with you. Yes. Because there's a network effect. Yes. With the cooperative and stuff. Yeah. There is also the value that you're creating within the platform that will make the farmer to say, "Mm, I would rather work with this guy because I can get 80% uh, in terms of profit if I do it on my own but I will struggle to sell it yes. with these guys I just work they take it off I assume they take it off and then you just give them 40% of the profit yes that's what we do so we take it off but even in taking off taking it off in deciding the price the farmer is present to see that this is actually the profit that came in so when he's getting 40% of that profit he knows that it was fair that he saw exactly there's transparency what, there's transparency across what we do how do you then sell so what we do is before we even start the farm as soon as we identify a crop on the location where we want to go to we look for the off taker the person that's going to buy and so usually they have prices within different times of the year and then if we're able to strike an agreement which we normally do we strike an agreement with the off-taker at a range of prices for the crops but for poultry we don't do that we actually price at um so for instance you sell a bird at 1.8 kg at a particular price and it's fixed and it's known across the market that that's the price so if you meet the 1.8 kg that is required of a bird you will sell it at this price so with poultry it's almost fixed so we get these guys that are going to buy from us to sign pre-arranged agreements with us so that at the end of the cycle the farmer knows how much we're selling to the off car and everybody knows what they need to do and they just mop up the birds from us and pay us as it went you let's talk about the macro business okay in bigger sense so nigeria has over 180 or 200 million people are we producing enough food that will serve this population i want to get an understanding of the demand and the supply side of the market at a macro level to a great extent what we've come to see is 
There's a lot of research that says that we're producing enough to feed ourselves. But the way the farm produce comes out from the farm and gets to the market, the process it goes through to get to the market constitutes 50% wastage between the farm and the market. And so in what we produce that it's supposed to be enough to feed the nation, 50% of it is wasted before it gets to the market. And so it's still not enough. Now, that's one. Two, we're now producing enough to start exporting significantly. And people are taking this a lot more seriously. And that makes it exciting for a farmer to not just produce for the local market, but export. In growing his appetite to export what he produces, he's reducing the 50% that would have gotten to the market for Nigerians to eat. Because it's more lucrative to send it outside yes. the country. So he makes more money at the end of the day. Okay. Okay. So there is that dynamics of we can produce enough, yes. but then wasting it. I'm going to come back to how your platform or other platform can solve that wastage okay. in terms of logistics. But what I want to get is the sense of the demand. So you said that before you go to a particular place, you already got the demand. Yeah. How easy is it to get that demand for the produce that you're trying to invest in? It's been a journey where we've learned small and grown big on. When we first started in Farm Crowd, the, the first farm we launched September 2016, we started with five. 550 day old chicks and in 550 day old chicks we raised them and raised them within the three to four month period and we sold them just around the christmas time there was a bit of demand around that time and because we were still learning we took it straight to the market you did it yourself you, we you ran raised, the farm yourself we ran the farms ourselves you seeded this thing yourself. yes and then we took it out and we tried to sell now in that process of raising those beds and selling those beds we learned a lot one was we learned that we had to tidy up insurance because we had a lot of issues moving the beds from Ibadan um, or your state to Lagos state truck broke down and then some birds went bad no they, they went bad like so the truck wasn't a freezing truck right so okay these are frozen these are birds they're we've not raised li- they're not they live. are live birds some of them were live but some of them were already killed and prepared okay. because some of the off takers are the people that wanted to buy from direct and go say, oh, please prepare 20 that are already killed and prepared for me to take and I will take it that way. Some would say, oh, please bring the live chicken. So what we did was a very interesting process. We went to Ibadu and then we had to kill some chickens and prepare them and defeather them and put them in bags and then wanted to bring them to Lagos to sell. And in that whole process, it taught us so many things. One, we weren't going to stay far from where we we're going to sell. Two, we we're going to make sure we tidy up the market before we start. Three, there was no way we would scale an operation where we had to physically get involved in the entire process. And so it taught us a lot. And in our journey, I think what has happened is across the different farms, when we start small, the way we've started, it helps us to learn all the mistakes quickly and learn from those mistakes and build into what becomes then a machine. Now we've done over 325,000 chickens in the lifetime of our business. And we've had mortality of less than 4%. At least yesterday, I was just asking technical field specialists that coordinate chicken, less than 4% mortality. The standard rate is 5%. And with 320, 25,000 chickens and having less than 4%, so it speaks to how we've grown over time. It's what? funny though that you said uh, mortality because at the end of the day, all these chickens are killed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> you talk but about killed the right way. 
And without them dying on you, or, or, <laughs> or without them getting to what they want to use them for, yeah. right? Okay, yeah, right. you can go on. <laughs> so that in itself has allowed us to model farm ground in a way that we try to make sure we start everything small and learn from it. Um, the, in our journey through September of that year, 2016 till date, we've run um five different types of farms. So we've done chicken farms, we've done maize farms, rice, soya beans, and cassava, and all of these farms have different cycles, and so we've learned who to employ to work with us. We've learned partners to work with. We've now learned how to tidy up the arrangement with the guys that will buy from us and get them involved also in the production so that they too understand that we're not just waiting for something to come out of the farm, but they understand how the process goes. Some of them are involved in providing feeds for the chicken. Some off-takers are involved in providing the relationship with the fertilizer producers that will give the right fertilizer that will give them the desired quality that they want at harvest from us. So we've learned how to integrate them into our production and that has eased off the process for so us. So who is paying for all of this? The sponsor in himself is paying for all of this with the unit cost. So because we've broken it down into very basic units, so the full package is now broken into tiny units. In every sponsorship that happens, if we put it all together, we take care of all of this cost within the sponsors. So I visited your website just okay. before we started this interview and I was looking at some of the stuff that you've got there. So you use the word sponsors and yeah. some of them are like, we're talking about less than $500, some of the farms. Is yeah. that a full cost of running a farm or you've broken it down? We've into broken it down. So for instance, if you look at um, poultry, we say in $500, you take care of 40-day-old chicks. But in 40 days, we're not going to run any farm with 40-day-old chicks. So maybe the farm is a 20,000 bird farm, but we've broken it down into units of 40 and so you come and you sponsor as many units as you want to sponsor we've seen sponsors do from $300 to $500 that you mentioned in the first cycle just to try us come back and do five times that amount in the next cycle and sometimes do up to 10 times we've seen a sponsor do $30,000 through the platform all Nigerians with Nigerian bank accounts doing this so that in itself makes it exciting for us where we have a lot of repeat sponsors who are excited and when we interview them and ask them why they do this they say they see beyond the return on the impact they have on the farmer's life, which makes that emotional connection for them to continue to do this as against putting their money in maybe treasury bills or fixed deposits. Now they can make some return this is while good. impacting the percent in three months. Yeah. If I put like $400 in this poultry farm unit that I'm looking at now, I get 8% in three months. Why well, changing someone's life? And changing someone's life. I'm yeah. doing good and doing well. Exactly. Right. So let's talk about how this all started. Okay. You this is this a first business? No, it's not. So you done some of that business apart from getting involved in the startup ecosystem because yeah. I knew you you were part of uh, Travel Better. Yes. As a chief commercial officer, yes. you were in Jumia. Yes. You were in other startup. You are in Konga. Wakanao. You are in Wakanao. You seem to be in other businesses that are like e-commerce. Tell me how it started for you. You okay. started in India. Yeah. And you came to Nigeria after that. Yeah. And which year was that? Um, 2016. And. You came from India in 2016. So all of this involvement was 2016 till you started your business. So my Indian program was one that I could do part of it or all of it in Nigeria. Right. And I wrapped it up in 2016. So the part where I worked from Nigeria and I um, studied from Nigeria, that was where I think my entrepreneurial journey started from. Right. Or maybe I trace it back to my parents, actually, okay. if I talk about that. My dad, as much as he's a bookworm, I call him a bookworm. I mean, he has two PhDs in... Two PhDs? Yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> 
<laughs> one in geriatrics medicine and one in obstetrics and gynecology. So he's a doctor. Yeah. And then he became uh, a and surgeon. Went, he, yeah. He became uh, a specialist. A specialist in consultant. And yeah. And yeah. he had a PhD. He then went back to school to have another PhD in medicine for old people. Uh, that was a trigger that came from when his mom, my grandma, died and she took the wrong drug. Well, she was administered the wrong drug at an age above 80. And so he said no. He wanted to go back to school, study how to deal with old people. And my, that's my dad. He loves books. I'm not... <laughs> I think I'm a bit towards my mom. I mean, even though I went through school and... I actually came out of my program having a first class in software engineering, but I never really was that bookworm. I was more excited about businesses. And that was my mom's um, genes, maybe in me, because she told me when I was 12 that if I wanted to be successful, I needed four streams of income. And my job was only one. So whatever I called my day job was one. I needed three other streams of income for me to work. So at 12, I started hearing things like that. I started reading books like um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad at that time. So I just wanted to do something. And so when I was in school, I started designing web Websites, designing a lot of websites and I designed so many websites. I think I designed around 40 websites. I designed websites to the point where I use websites to talk to girls. I, I want to talk to a lady. I can't talk to her directly. I design a website in her name in 30 minutes. I send it to her. She gets the link and she's like, wow. And then, yeah, that's the icebreaker for me. Wow. <laughs> so I, I was that crazy. And then I designed so many websites and then I then found a friend who was designing websites and making money and then I wanted to learn how to do that as well. So my first company was in 2005 with a guy that is today my CTO in Farm Crowdy. And um, we started our business and with the first did a couple of websites from there. And then graduating from school, I then started working with a couple of organizations, um, the likes of British Council, where I was a webmaster for Nigeria um, for two years. And then Deloitte, where I was an e-marketing coordinator for six African countries. And then from there, I was more interested in startups. And this was the time when Wakana had just raised um, some money from Tiger Global. And they were looking at becoming the Expedia of Nigeria. Yeah. So they approached me. I was a Deloitte then and they made me a fantastic offer including the fact that I was going to study a guy that was a genius in online marketing in the US at that time. So they had haunted you from Deloitte? Yes they did. That's super interesting. So startups were end on team people. Yeah. Were they giving comparable salary or no, more? They were given more. They were given three were, times more than what Deloitte was given. Interesting. Yeah. They were giving three times more Deloitte established business was given. Yeah. Because I thought normally early stage startup because what kind of was like early stage startup? Yeah. Yeah, this was 2010. Yeah. yeah. Except late stage startup, they're the one that can compete that financially. But early stage startup, we sell dreams and hopes mm. and aspirations that you, you can end part of our business and then you can become a millionaire if we exist. Yeah. But these guys are saying, okay, we're going to give you money. Now. Yeah. I think the approach was they sold to the investors that they were going to do this. That they were going to get a very top senior management team and they were going to get the best hands. And whatever it is they were going to pay, they will pay to get them in $7.5 million around that time. That was so what was raised. Yeah was a lot of money and um, I think they did a very good job recruiting a fantastic senior management team at that time. I was the youngest person in that team, but uh, I learned from everyone that was there. Um, there was the um, CTO who was the CTO of um, Virgin at that time, Virgin um, Airlines, and she had done a lot of stuff in Wando. She was a CTO there. There was HR guys that had tons and tons of years of experience. I was a learner, so that was good for me, surrounding myself with people like that. And... 
what that did for me was build me in my online marketing skill, which was something I was really particular about at that stage in my career. And then I started looking for how to transition my second year with them into this more... This was 2005 or six. No, this is 2010. 2010? Yeah. We're working now. We're now, 2010. And then 2012, I was already looking at how to transition more into traditional marketing and PR because I wanted to be a rounded marketing guy. I didn't want to just be um, an online marketing I wanted to have a feel of both sides. And um, while the discussion was going on, Rocket Internet, who are the guys that um, launched Jumia in Nigeria, were just coming in. And I don't know how that happened, but I sent them an email. I just searched on the internet, on LinkedIn, and I was checking for who is doing anything interesting in retail e-commerce for fashion. And then I found that they were doing something called Zando in South Africa. I wrote a letter to, via LinkedIn, I sent an email, I still remember, I still have that, sent an email to the MD of Zando there said, have you thought about coming to Nigeria? Because Nigeria is a fantastic place. I just tried to sell the opportunities. My goal was I wanted them to come and see if I could do traditional marketing with them. That was what I wanted to do. What do you mean traditional marketing? So pretty much um, offline marketing. So TV, radio. Right. Um, but by that time, you were still in Wakana. Well, you're looking to move on. Yes. Okay. So I was looking to move on. And because I didn't see any other startup that I wanted to join at that time, I was not looking for a startup that was interesting enough to come into Nigeria. I sent that email that evening. And the next day, I got an email from them saying we're in Nigeria. I'm like, oh, fantastic. I said, let's meet. And I went to meet them. At this time, I had started up um, a store. It was barely three days old, an online store. So I had sent them the link that they should look at this. I think there's an opportunity for this. So I went to meet them in um, a hotel in um, Lagos. And then they said to me, oh, yeah, we've seen your website, but um, we have a dream of building the Amazon of Nigeria. I'm like, okay, nice. And then they were like, but we don't have any Nigerian in the team. And um, the CSE law says that um, we need Nigerians, a Nigerian at least to be a director to set up the business. So we are looking at you. Will you be interested? We've looked at your profile. Will you be Because they asked me a couple of questions and then I answered That's it. super interesting. Yeah. I was the like, first meeting, they were asking you to be a director. Direct, I was like, okay, what does it until? At that time, I wasn't talking stick. I didn't know anything about um, equity and I wasn't very familiar with things like that. So I like, said, so what does it entail? And I go, oh, no, no, you just be a director. I mean, we've done a bit of research on you. We feel you're someone we can trust. Um, so all the monies will come in, but you'll be signatory to the account. Um, but I thought that time they had co-founders as well, like Tunde Kende and um, Rafael who uh, were joining, or was that pre Tunde Kende and Rafael? So what I later found out was that while they were having that conversation with me, the guy that brought me into that conversation, his name is Leo, he was trying to build the fashion arm of what Rock Internet was coming to do in Nigeria. While I think Rafael and um, Bolaho, Bolaho, okay, yeah. We're also doing something similar from electronics, uh, so a different category. This guy was doing fashion and shoes, bags and all. They were looking at electronics and uh, everything related to electronics and appliances at the same time. So both startups eventually launched at the same time. And it was only when I signed my letter and joined them, I then found out that, oh, actually, there are actually two startups right. that took off the same day and <laughs> started the same time. And you joined as a director? Yeah. As in the organization? Yes. Okay. I joined as a director of marketing and partnerships and pretty much helped them recruit the first 35 people that joined the team from the fashion arm. And everything just took up really fast. And we raised some money and were able to raise money I mean, the process of raising money was startling because I'd never seen anything like that. We raised money and then in the next two months, we're raising maybe 10 times that money. Who was doing all this raising? 
It was um, Rocket Internet from Germany. From they Germany, were raising the money from you. So okay, we just close another round yes. now. You got and then my money. money to do push, and everything was faster, faster, faster. It was really brutal, man. And it was, but the experience was good because that made me driven in any pursuit I have today. I remember my third day in the job, the MD came to me and said, "You've got to launch our business in a week's time, or you're fired." This was my third day on the job, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> Who was the MD? I mentioned his name earlier. Uh, Leo. Leo. Okay. And he's an Nigerian or German? No, he's German. I used to call him the German machine. Then. <laughs> so you just said, okay, we're yeah. launching in a week's time. Get us out in a week's time. We want to be known in Nigeria. And then I had a very slim budget. Like it was a ridiculous budget. I mean, imagine coming from Wakanda where I had a budget of over $500,000 to $1 million to spend. And I come to this place and I have a budget of $1,200, $1,500. And I'm but, supposed but to But they raised lots of money. Why do you have small Budget. This was very early days. So this was even before they started raising a lot of money. Um, this was early days to prove the concept that it can work. And the concept was to be able to sell shoes online. Yes, and shoes and fashion online. So the idea was to get people to discover yeah. that they can buy shoes online yeah. and to trust the system enough to pay yes. or order and yes. get the shoes and, and then pay them. when now pay on delivery was born out of the need of getting people to really buy because we started having a lot of customers say I'm not sure you would deliver so why not just deliver and then I'll pay you when I see what you've delivered and there's the issue of people not getting their sizes right exactly right? So how, because that's a big one it was a major problem because the mistake Rocket Internet did then was it took the South African template and wanted to replicate it here that was a big problem and that's also the problem that many any organizations that come into Nigeria or Africa and go to specific countries try to replicate models out there here. It doesn't always work. You've got to customize it to suit the market you're in. So what happened was the shoe sizes in South Africa, they thought it would be the same shoe sizes with us in Nigeria. The kind of things South Africans loved in terms of fashion and color thought it was the same thing with us here. So they had those issues and they had to readjust and credit has to go to them. They learned very fast and implemented this really, really quick. And in deciding um, how we launched that period, that was when I had to learn the art of public relations because I had very little budget. I couldn't spend it on digital marketing. I couldn't spend it on search engine marketing. I couldn't spend it on, on so many of that. I just thought about how we could go about it. And then the idea was just to bring journalists to a room and tell them that something is about to take off and then provide lunch for them with the money I had and then design four different press releases with all these links and all the stories, both hard copy and electronic copy that I was going to email to them and tell them about this new business and then allow them to now interview the team that was trying to launch this business, including the MD and all the other team members and then get them out there to publish and I started chasing them to put the stories out there. It worked. Interesting. It worked. And with $1,200 to $1,500, I've forgotten the exact number, we're able to all of a sudden become the focus of Nigeria saying, oh, finally, there's an Amazon in Nigeria. And that was how Sabunta became... It's called Sabunta. Yeah, then. that was what it was called. That's how it became something to reckon with. So later on, Sabunta and Kasua merged to become Jumia and that gave birth to Jumia and I was with them in that period and um, it was exciting at that time I then became deliberate of understanding how to deal with investors because I thought that was the biggest lesson I was going to get while working beyond the PR and the tradition did you take a pay rise or a pay cut when you moved from Waka now to Jumia it's good you ask that question because many people don't I took a pay cut and it was risky I was married then we just had a baby I took a um, 40% pay cut why did you do that? 
because I was after what I wanted to achieve in my career, which was the opportunity to finally touch traditional marketing and PR marketing and do so in the capacity of one leading that operation from a company that was starting from scratch. So I wanted to do that because I wanted to join a company starting from scratch and take advantage of the opportunity of learning with them in the area of focusing on traditional marketing and PR marketing. So you put a lot of premium on your learning because you know it's going to pay off. Yes. Do you have a vision that I'm going to start something at some point? So all this learning, I moved from white color Deloitte to startup and I know how this work I want to move to another startup so that I can learn. Was that a thread that you are trying to weave along yeah. the way? So what happened was in, while I was in British Council I met a guy that was a mentor to me then, Victor Kibble, and I asked him that I felt like I was good in too many things. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was good in the technology side of business. I was good in the marketing side of business. I said, what do you think I would become if I continue the way I'm going? And he then told me I could either be a CTO or a CMO. He told me to do my research around both sides and see which one I feel like I will be passionate about driving. I then did my So you research. do programming? You can write? Yes, I, I was a software engineer in school. I did a lot of programming. I could write a lot of codes. So I then made the decision there that I was going to become a chief marketing officer. And in becoming a chief marketing officer, I then found out that my knowledge of online marketing, which was all I knew at that stage, wasn't going to get me to become a chief marketing officer. I needed to be rounded. So I started making deliberate decisions to not just learn online marketing, but learn traditional marketing, to learn PR, to learn the art of selling, to learn customer service. And so every opportunity I could find that was leading me to that goal of taking care of all of this, I wanted to do that quickly because I also set another goal where at a particular age, I wanted to be the CMO of a company that was just known all over Nigeria. I didn't have a name. So I won't say CMO of MTN or Google, just any company that is known all over Nigeria. And I was leading that. It was my mother's goal at that point in time. And while chasing that, I then took the second goal, which was after I'm done doing this, I also wanted to run my own business. So I was trying to learn in every instance and I was pricing my learning over the money I was going to be paid in any role. As long as I felt like I had learned everything I needed to learn in that role, I moved on to the next. So people said to me when they looked at my career that I was running and it looked like I was moving from place to place. I told them there were two things they weren't noticing. One was I was actually growing from one level to the next level, both in my learning and also in the responsibility that I was taking on. And eventually, by the time I got to the point where I joined Conga, because when I was done at Jumia, I had a stint in GTB, then joined Conga. Oh, you moved from um, the startup yeah, I, and then moved to a bank. No, I didn't. I consulted for the bank. I didn't necessarily become a full-time employee. Okay, well, why did you leave Jumia? Um, when the merger happened, there were a lot of issues around um, politics and all. And at that time, I felt politics wasn't for me. <laughs> I wasn't ready to start politics. How big was the company at that time? But. 300 people employed. Wow. Because both companies merged. Sabunta merged with Kasua and they had raised a lot of money to employ a lot of people. So it was that big and there's a lot of conflict of interest. And what I found was that a lot of people that I came in with had moved on to other things because Sabunta took him had a blue with the merger than Kasua. And that in itself spoke to the fact that I was almost a lone ranger at certain times and 
I wasn't so comfortable with what I was saying. So and, I and what was your role in the in after the, the major company? Yeah. yeah, there were so many issues around what roles were. So you had a CMO, a new CMO, and then I was still director of marketing. And so how do you have two sets of people? And so there's all so much clashes and all. Um, I still remained the director of marketing and partnerships until I left. Then had a discussion with the team and told them I was leaving. Um, I spoke to Raphael, who I still have very um, high respect for. And told him he wasn't so comfortable with me leaving. He didn't want it to happen, but I told him I wanted to. And he asked me what I was going to do. And I had just launched a mobile app, a news aggregator. I told him I was going to focus on growing that. What, what year was this? This was still 2012 but in the last quarter of 2012. So I left them and within a couple of days, I got an offer to come into the bank to consult. GT Bank was about to launch a couple of things, including their website, social banking. They were pushing their digital marketing team and all. So I came in to consult as the lead for their digital marketing team focused on all of these things. So you're working almost full-time, but then as a freelancer. Yes, it was. they have a lot of that there. So I was a full-time of freelance and you did that for how long i did it for about five months and while i was there sim found out that i left jumia sim of kunga found out that i left jumia and called me up one day and we had a conversation and he told me to come to the office and i went to meet him i was moved by his uh sim is a fantastic orator Interesting. Uh, he spoke about a vision i was like wow finally a nigerian that sees these things this german see and can what build- was the difference between his vision and the magnitude of his own vision that he shared with you and the ones that the Jumia team shared with you? I always felt like through Arcade Internet and Jumia was building a business to sell. So it was all about making money. Sim was building a business that he wanted to outlive him. He wanted it to, to be something that Nigerians can point to and say, yes, we have a legacy also in the e-commerce space. He was building something that he wanted Nigerians to be proud of. So it was almost coming from the front of the foreigners have come and done this. We too can do our own and this is it. And he was very passionate about this. And then he sold that vision to me that let's build what Nigerians will be proud of that Nigerians built. And um, yeah, that got me. He took me around, showed me the team, showed me everyone. I was excited to see young people just trying to build something as well. And not too far from what Rocket Internet had already done. And then I love challenges because <laughs> the one man he told me was, you have a mandate if you join us to beat Jumia in two years. I'm like, wow. Yeah. So he was pitching to you, not even an interview. So yeah. Yeah, I'm already made up my mind for you to join us. Yeah. something to convince you. Yeah. Because you are now working with a bank, which yeah. looks like yeah. it's a big move for you. Yes. And he made an offer and it was good. I liked it. And I Was said, it better than what you were coming from in Jumia or the bank? It was better than the bank, but the bank was going to match it when they found out I was about to leave. They didn't want me to leave because the team was still very new and um, there were a lot of good things that happened while I was there. I was very happy about some successes that I was able to help them achieve. Um, the mobile app they had, the GT Bank mobile app, they were struggling with getting 5,000 downloads. I came in and in three weeks we were able to do some interesting things. What did you and do? Did very simple things. And so they had the mobile app that time on BlackBerry devices. BlackBerry was the phone that was big. And then because I had just built my app and pushed it and so I grew the downloads on my app through subtle things like commenting in forums that related to what you were doing and then trying to showcase the app on the BlackBerry um, App Store 
landing area. Just as simple as some of those things were. And then deciding on um, the right keywords to use to push the app with Google Marketing, where you had no competition and you can easily bid for 0.25 cents to get the same level of downloads you're looking for. That So I tried to put some of those strategies in place and I mean that I turned them on. It just worked like magic and they moved from 5,000 downloads to 50,000 downloads in two weeks. And they were on 5,000 downloads for months. So I think for about six months, they were trying to find ways of growing it. So I just became like a superstar and it was good, but I was one of those people in the bank or in every place I've worked with before the likes of Travel Better and Farm Crowdy. I always try to stay under the radar. So in all the success we had there, people were just happy that things were happening. And I was happy about that, that there was a lot of success. So they weren't happy I left. I mean, they weren't happy I left and they really wanted to work with me after that to the point where they offered that even if I was working in any other place, I could still set up a team. I would still consult for them outside of the bank. So it was a very good relationship and I cherished that. But you decided to move to Conga because you were sold on the vision. Yes. That- that scene Shagaya was trying to. Yes, uh, and he was building a local marketing team and he wanted me to champion that. And there was also talk about investors saying that they weren't sure they would find um, any marketing guy that would deliver on the mandate that was set on Conga to deliver. And he wanted to prove them wrong. And me, I love challenges. I think maybe sometimes just too competitive. I was like, are you serious? Okay, then let's do this. And took up the offer and it was fantastic. Beautiful, fantastic team. Got some people from Jumia that worked with me and got them in and some people from all over the place from Google my recruiting style was weird the guy that led our PR marketing in Conga the way I got him was he wrote a fantastic article about me that was bad to my image and I was so angry the reason I was so angry was because he wrote very well but it was bad article to the image of Conga he what was, was it about? he was talking about how Conga was poaching Jumia staff and this was in the heat of the time when the competition was stiff everybody was holding everyone's throat and then somebody just comes and writes this and he wrote and published it on a channel that was visible in Kenya and South Africa and in Nigeria Nigeria and Ghana. So the effect was just massive. I was like, who's this guy? And then I reached out to him and respectfully told him, can you pull this article down? If you want the truth, I can give you a full interview. But he wasn't lying, right? Because you are all all pushing from each other. He wasn't lying, but there were context of what he was saying that wasn't the truth. So he was using different things to try to build a strong story. He said he was going to do the interview and then he'll pull it down. Before he even came in to interview me, he then ended up pulling the story down and then wrote to me and said, okay, I pulled it down. So when do we schedule for your interview? I said, okay, can you come to the office and um, let's meet at social time. And he came in and he thought he was coming to interview me but i was interviewing for a job was he working for a media company at that time he had just left um, one of the top startups in nigeria then and um was now doing this so i found out in the process of doing my research around him that he was now freelancing and i felt like well if he could pull this kind of research and did what he did with the words he was able to conjure then maybe this guy should be on our team and so i called him and so he thought he was coming to interview me but i ended up flipping it aside and started interviewing him made him an offer went to see him told him, i think this guy's good and he came in and he did really a job he was maybe one of my best hires at the end of the day and we had a very strong relationship and he did a lot of good things for us and so that 
was how I built my team. I mean, I built my team when I was looking for a search engine optimization manager. There was a lady that was running a one-man shop, but was giving another startup that had a lot of funding run for their money just because she knew how to use um, keywords right. Wow. And as soon as I saw that battle going on, I contacted her. I said, what are you doing at the moment? She's like, I can't run my shop. I said, okay. A shop, a physical shop or online? Um, online shop. Online shop, okay. She was making them have nightmares and they didn't know she was just one man. They had over 30 staff. They had some funding, but this lady was just dealing with them. So I called her in to join us and she joined. And she closed that shop? She closed that shop. So I have maybe my own software of also convincing people to... How do you do that? What do you say? I sell the vision. I sell the impact. I sell... The, the vision of the startup yeah, and what I it can do for the future of the continent of the country. Or do you sell, okay, if we succeed, you can make money as well because we're going to have shares. I How actually, do you sell it? I actually never really sell on shares and making money. I sell more on impact. I sell more doing something that becomes meaningful. Like leaving a legacy that you'll be proud of two, three years from now you will forget how much you were earning but people will remember you for what you do in the company and then i sold the fact that now you have the opportunity of joining a platform where you can showcase your skill and then maybe tomorrow you too will have the opportunity of doing the same thing so in things like that i maybe sold to people what excited me about joining the organizations i joined as well so and then the opportunity of also having i mean i'm pretty much a manager that likes to get people that i give the freedom to express themselves and so they own their own beat and they're excited that whatever it is they've come up with i have the ear to listen to implement where we can and then they look at it and say okay that's my own contribution to this so in that level of building trust and selling impact and selling legacy it was my own way of getting the best hands to join us so yeah that was my part with conga and we had the mandate of doing it in two years we ended up doing it in nine months when i introduced the black friday sales i would call it their four yakata the neighborhood was somebody in the team that brought it up um, and we built a fantastic team. We eclipsed Jumia in sales that same year I joined them. We did fantastic work. It was a very, very good experience. So what do you think now happened? Are you feeling some nostalgia when you heard what later happened in yeah, the way the, the old business? Every one of us. And unraveled and almost died and was sold for a penny. And with Jumia, and you've been involved in both businesses. What's your take? I think what actually happened? From an emotional standpoint, I think what happened with Konga is something that we're not happy about. I mean, say we, because I've spoken with many people that worked with me and it's the same thing, they, the same emotions they pulled out. Um, for so much sweat and blood that went into that company, it's sad that it had the turnout. I mean, even if I wasn't going to benefit from it, if Konga had a fantastic exit, I would have been so proud of. Would the early employees have some money at all? Yes, yes. Uh, I think a lot of them had sweat equity that um, they would cash on. In, you, uh, did you have? I didn't. Uh, so there was no um, share options? For There was just before I joined. Okay. Um, according to what I heard. So it just ended just before I joined. So what do you think happened? I think the problem was that Conga stayed too long. From my own perspective, I mean, there may be things that happened in-house that I don't know of. And it's been over, what, five years since I left there. But I think from the outside, what I see is, I think they stayed too long in Nigeria. Should have then expanded. But then it was the vision to build that in Nigeria. So proud of But I think it stayed too long in Nigeria and didn't take advantage of other markets that would have cushioned the effect of what happened with the economy in 2015 and 2016. So they were not de-risked enough. They weren't de-risked enough. 
that was the major issue. And that is why Jumia could pull through that period. Jumia had spread itself into so many countries that the pull effect from Nigeria or Egypt wasn't enough to devalue the business to the point where it found itself in the same position as Congo. But that's risky. You know, there's some businesses that have scaled into multiple cities. So for example, the, the cleaning business in the US that scaled too quickly into multiple cities and died. And the ones that focused on the profitable market and build the playbook well and then replicate it slowly while the ones are still alive today. So there are two things you've mentioned. One is they scaled too quickly. Two is what market did they actually, I mean, other players that you said stayed in the market and played, what market was that? It was in Nigeria. It was in the US. It was in a structured market where you can almost predict what will happen. Nigeria, you can't do that. Now, the other thing about scaling too quickly with Jumia, because Rocket Internet's team already had a master plan around how they were going to scale. They set up a team, pretty much like the launch team that sat out of Berlin and was ready to churn out and launch new businesses in new places they risking themselves at the end of the day was possible because they had democratized how they operated as a business not centralizing anything in one location that in itself helped them because today they want to launch in togo all they need is a co-founder they need a couple of top people in operations and logistics. Digital marketing will come from Berlin. Finance will come from Berlin. So many things will come from source. And so it makes it less risky starting up this business and easy to take off and own a new market. So they already had a model they had built that they understood clearly. Now, speaking back to the Conga issue, I think also another thing that hurt the business was there was a bit of shift on focus. So I personally sense that from the time Sim resigned and left, there may have been issues already in the system and he may have seen a lot of things and didn't want to be part of it so I can't speak for them now I mean the best I do is I just look from the outside and I feel like maybe did not de-risk themselves by expanding into other markets so, but it's kind of painful for people like you that believe in that vision and all the people that you put together Yeah. but also having said that though a lot of people that were with Conga um, benefited from understanding how high growth businesses run Yes. now they are now the bedrock of founding another business Businesses yes. becoming top executives in our businesses. Yes. And the ecosystem is better off for yes. that. So you moved from Conga to travel better or um, to no, something else? I moved from Conga to then properly launch the startup. I started while I was in junior. I raised some money from Chikamobi and then launched um, QuickGist. And QuickGist grew and... What was QuickGist supposed to be doing? It was a news aggregator. So pretty much you come early days of... Um, you have so many websites you want to visit on your phone. And then what you do, you have to open several tabs. So with QuickGist, you can just arrange all your websites into one screen. And then you just flip in the tab and it's moving from website to website without... Just you have website basically yes so just aggregating content from you know the i have an idea of something like that but not website it's aggregating news for the africans in diaspora okay so i live in the uk right and if i want to read nigerian news okay there are few places i can go to, to yeah. get a full picture so i can go to that's a website called uh, nigeria world yeah that you can go to and aggregate all the top news but most of the time it's always maybe late because okay. they're in the state uh, if you want to enjoy yourself and just laugh you can go to narala 
banned because <laughs> it not, it's not becoming a news aggregator and I can yeah. tell you what is happening. So, or you go to the newspaper that you know, that yeah. you know, Vanguard or yeah. other. So I felt there should be an app that should curate news based on your, your own, own preference. Yes. Yes. And it's an app that can pick from all the news. So if I want to yeah. know about uh, the local football club in Ibadan, yeah. uh, shooting stars, and, and I want to know stories about them, that app will just curate it for me. It'd be like what Apple News does now. Yes. But for the Africans in the diaspora. Yes. So you can pick news for your local, from your country, from your state, from whatever politics, sport, whatever you want to pick. That was what Quick Gist was doing. That was the idea. That okay. was the idea. And... That was pretty much the idea. You, what you, happened you, to that? We learned very late in the business that it was too early. And when you say too early, is it that not enough people want to consume news that way? Consuming news was one. The second thing was paying for the fact that you're consuming news that way. How do we keep the servers running? How do we keep people employed? How do we continue to build on technology when people weren't paying for What was your business model? Oh. There were a lot of breaks in between. So before the story loads, you get to see an advert. Okay. While the story is loading or while the story is on, you may see an advert at the bottom. So we, we're pretty much doing the ad business. So why is that a problem? Traction. Um, we just didn't have enough people to be able to sell the ads the way we wanted to sell it. And then two, we then started running out of money. Okay. Where, so it's not about people don't want to pay for news because people don't normally pay for news exactly, anyway. That's it's that, that you don't get enough people that want to consume news that way. Consume news that way to the point where advertisers are attracted by the traffic you're getting. Yeah. yeah. So they don't want to use the product. Yeah. Yeah, because if you get enough people to use the product, then advertisers will come. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you could, it was in a mobile app or just a website? It was a mobile app. And then we then built a website out of it. My co-founder then, his name is uh, Bellumi. He's now the guy running Kudi, the oh, AI. Yeah, um, yeah, I was in the office today. Okay, so Bellumi was my co-founder in QuickGest. Interesting. And both of us were building it. We worked together in Jumia and then I told him, let's work on this together. So we built it for a couple of months and we were just trying to get some traction and uh, we're trying to build this. Uh, so, so here's the thing, right? So I, when I first came to Nigeria, I brought a piece. It was just a reflection of my take about the ecosystem. I saw a lot of things happening. I got excited about people I met. I met people like Basunti Jani, Inya Boyeji, took me out to a party. And a lot of people, and I felt this is great. This, this is a new, this buzzing ecosystem here. And then when I got back to England, I wrote a piece. And one of the lines in that piece was that I believe a lot of companies in the ecosystem will die, but that death will classify uh, the ecosystem better, make it stronger. Yeah. Because there's something about repeat founders. Yeah. Uh, repeat founders are the ones that build the ecosystem a lot. So what you're telling me now, a lot, you just talk about you founded a business with Bellumi. Bellumi now founded Kudi.it. Yeah. A business that I know a lot yeah. about. Yeah. And they're doing well. Now, it's experience, I think, from that would have led to what he's doing now. And you now building your own business. Yes. The same with Rafael, who was in Jumia, yes. now building his new business. Yes. And the loads of people that I worked with, Konga, like yeah. uh, a friend from Max.ng, yeah. yeah. who was also tired, who was also with Konga yeah. at some yeah. point. And yeah. it's interesting, right, that when giving money to startups, sometimes you don't get the money back from that startup that you got now as in generally I mean for the investors that invested that time maybe they lose money but then the ecosystem, ecosystem becomes stronger yeah. and then more investors come in exactly. and you can then reap your reward later on yes. down the line yes very very true and I've seen it from place to place there are a lot of people that work with me in Konga and Jumia today that run different businesses the guys that run um, Sure Gifts worked with me in Jumia Krejital Evans Akano he reported to me I mean he was one I pulled from Jumia to work with me in Konga 
Kunga as my creative designer. And then when I left Kunga, he then went to start Krijita, which is now maybe the biggest creative agency of startups and SMEs in Nigeria. There are a lot of those stories. And this is why I tell people that the ecosystem is still maybe eight years old. Or less. Or less. If you want to look at the startup years. <laughs> and what you will see is you'll find better businesses coming up. You'll find better entrepreneurs making better decisions coming out of this ecosystem. Today, I'm running Farm Crowdy. There are people in Farm Crowdy today that I know will go and do great things when they want to do it themselves. My job will be to create a place in Farmcraft where they can then do great things within um, the business. But they have the potential to do that. And in watching me make my own mistakes and learn from them, they will make better decisions. So I think at the end of the day, the ecosystem is growing, it's expanding, it's getting a lot more mature. And people now understand what sweat equity is. They understand what getting um, stock options in the business is. In 2012 and 2010, many people were talking about those things because they didn't really understand it. I mean, now we hear about one unicorn coming out of the ecosystem. And then somebody says, maybe you have five unicorns in the next 10 years. What will happen is you will find many, many, many other companies that may not reach that status, but we build mature businesses that will be making waves in that same life. And then the circle now becomes that then when those people now build new businesses, they build it better than the previous one that they've yes. out of. Yes. Then there'll be better exit. Then start, yes. startup founders be, become investors. Better investors. And choosing <laughs> the best companies yeah. that would then lead to more effect of yes. better companies coming up yes. and it's just built on top yeah, of Exactly. Each other. Exactly. With time, Nigeria is going to get to that point and you will find those kind of things happen here. So it's just a matter of time. I mean, if we go two more cycles, and for me, a cycle is maybe about um, five years to seven years. If we stay in the next 10 years continuing on this trend you will find mature businesses that will rival what you have outside the country yeah, I believe that as well. So let's talk about how you ideated Come Fraudy. You've had this a long stretch of career in startups and majorly in marketing. How did that get to you founding a platform for farmers? What happened was when I left Gunga and joined Travel Better, I pretty much started Travel Better from the scratch for the owners and built that business for them to where you I joined the founders. I joined the owners of the platform. Okay. So I said owners Travel because of Travel Better. And you said I owners, became the, why did you say? owner? Because um, they own the business. Uh, they had the money and they own the equity and I just came in to help them launch the business. Okay, so it wasn't like a traditional uh, startup founder that raised money. This guy's saw an opportunity and they wanted to use technology to explore that. Yes, yes. And so it was now come in, create an MVP that makes it exciting for them to now invest that money back into the startup and, and then start with whatever you have and see what you can turn it into. Um, so that became successful to the point where they invested over $2 million while I was helping them manage that money to make the business what it became. Were you the MD? I wasn't necessarily the MD. I was more like the acting MD at some point when the business launched. I was the chief commercial officer, but my title never changed beyond that. So I still remained the chief commercial officer, even if I was running the entire business for them. So I did that for two years. But while I was doing that, I made the decision that if I was going to try it again the second time, I mean, because I didn't consider Travel Better as me doing my own business the way I wanted to do it. Um, I was doing it for someone and I wanted to do my own thing. I then said, there were three sectors I was interested in. One was agriculture, two was real estate, and three was transportation. Those are critical infrastructure business. Yes, and I carefully selected them because I felt that you could apply technology to these three sectors and really 
transform what people are used to seeing in these sectors. What was your thesis? I looked at all the different arms of business and felt like if there was anyone that was going to have the most impact on Nigerians today, apart from power, because I didn't want to electricity, do anything, yes, electricity. Energy, yeah. I didn't want to do anything there because I felt like <laughs> there was a different level of investment of resources and research and time into that uh, to get something out of it. But in these ones, you could easily apply technology to it and find that you will be affecting so many lives with very little application of technology. And then I felt also that not many people were using technology to solve problems in these areas. So they almost looked like blue oceans for me um, in that regards. So while I was looking at the three, around the same time was when the new administration came into place and they were preaching the gospel of agriculture and telling everybody to invest in agriculture. So I just looked at all three and said, okay, I didn't want to touch transportation because I was going to be coming out of travel better. My time, what can I, let me just hold up with that. Um, with real estate was something exciting, but I didn't want to go into that yet because I felt agriculture, if I started anything with agriculture and use technology to solve any problem in agriculture, I would just ride on the wave of what the government is preaching and I'll do less marketing telling people to not invest. Yeah, agriculture. So I then started doing my research around, okay, what do I then do? Um, while I was then looking at what to do, I then said, okay, maybe I should just then invest in a farmer. The day I then decided to meet a farmer, to say, okay, so what's your farm? He said he had a cassava farm. I met two farmers, a fish farmer and a cassava farmer. And the fish farmer, I wasn't so impressed with his mannerism and his way, his approach. I felt we wouldn't be able to communicate easily. But the cassava farmer, I saw a married man who was living from what he was getting from the farm. And he explained the business sense to me around when you put 400,000 area into my farm, this is the level of involvement you will have with me. And this is what I would do with it. And this is what you get at the end of the day. He was that transparent to bring a lot of the figures down. We went to the farm to see the farm. I could see the people that were going to be benefiting from this with that little. And I could see the return at the end of the cycle. I was like, okay, so why is it that not many people are doing this? And he told me, he said, because I'm not able to communicate with them the way I have communicated with you. Interesting. So he felt there was a communication gap between those that were really interested in investing and meeting the right people that will be able to now sell off the idea to them to invest in. So I said, okay, then maybe instead of me investing in you, first I said, before I'll do it, I'll call other friends who are now co-founders with me in Farm Crowdy. So I called my CTO, who was my best man in my wedding. And like I said, we started the first business in 2005. I called uh, my CFO, who is also co-founder. And he had just helped me with two startups before that to run our books. I was his first client, like, providing him the opportunity to do a consulting service for us. So I knew him way back. I called a couple of people, who were just five of us, and we wanted to invest in that guy. You wanted to run like an investment syndicate? Yes. I didn't want to do it alone because I wanted to share the risk. <laughs> I wasn't going to be the one to bring all the money. But while doing our research, just before we were going to invest in the guy, the guy then got back to me and said, farmer had collapsed. That even if we give him that money, the season had passed. And I said, oh, so did you talk to the banks? Did you talk to other people like us? And then that's when he told me the complication gap. Did you talk to the banks? The banks don't give small-scale farmers money on an individual. But you have to be in a cooperative. You have to go as a group. I'm like, okay. And the season is gone. So what are you going to do? He says, looking for a job. Wow. I said, like, okay. Now, 
I shifted my research from just investing in a cassava farm to now checking out how many people fit the profile of this man. That's when I started seeing startling numbers. How many people want to actually invest in agriculture? I started doing my research. So many questions and questions and people were looking for how they'll go about it. In fact, that was where the name, so farm crowd, it was like crowd farming. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like, let's find a way of now getting this crowd of people to now invest in the farmers we've now identified and then we will be the people in the middle too. So we will be the ones speaking on behalf of the farmers to the people and then we'll be the people speaking on behalf of those people to the farmers. Uh, have you seen some uh, crowdfunding platforms Um, yes. before then? Like oh, you mean standard startup crowdfunding platforms? So I saw Kiva and I was like, okay, interesting model, but I didn't want the donation model for what we're going to be doing. Then I just looked at it and said, okay, I saw a startup also in China that was doing something related to sheep farming. So people will buy sheep's with their mobile phones and then the farmer will be raising the sheep and then when the sheep goes to full blown size they will wool the sheep every time he wools the sheep he will pay the guy back for wooling the sheep and he can do that maybe 10 times in the life of the sheep and then sells the sheep every time he wools the sheep the guy is getting some money back and so until they sell the sheep so you see people buy 10 sheep and 20 sheep it was exciting for me and so I took that and I took the Kiva style model I said let us build something like that but I wasn't going to do donation and then we decided we're going to do profit share and so I designed the first website for Farm Crowdy we started building it and then we launched September 14th and all September 2014 September 14, 2016 oh September 14, 2016 yeah and when we went live by this next day we had our first sponsor a um, random person or somebody from your email list the first person that sponsored was um, a professor that I had spoken to about the idea so he did the first sponsorship but a random person that found out about us from an email blast. So then you, just, uh, you got this farm and then you broke down the unit of the farm of the to, cost yes. to 100,000 and then you said, okay, yeah. it's now open, you can invest. You can now invest. And then every investment, you, so we had to do a lot around and this is why Farm Crowdy seems very simple when you look at the website. We try to make it as basic what we're communicating to the sponsors so that they completely get a clear understanding of what it is we're doing. From the farmer's side, we engage them throughout the farming cycle with our technical field specialist who stays with the farmer until the cycle is done so pretty much leaving with the farmer so all of these helped get the first set of sponsors i was still in travel better then and then i then oh you were doing that aside i was doing it as a as side gig. i didn't want to make the mistake i did with quick just where i just called it quick and then moved in and then my own weight pulled the business resources and it wasn't good so this time around i stayed with travel better and i was funding the project with my money with the relationships I had with the network. So a lot of things were done with that level of funding. We had a lot of sponsors. I mean, we did about um, $14,000 in the first two weeks in September. Um, a sponsorship. A sponsorship. And yeah. what was the business model then as well? And it's now, still well. the same thing. And what was that? It was that you sponsor a farm and when you go farm cycle, we sell the farm harvest and we split the profit on the 40-40-20 ratio where, for instance, you put $100 in our platform and let's say we've done our work well and we get $150 we pay the sponsor back $100 and then between the sponsor the farmer and farm crowd we split the profit on a 40 40 goes to the sponsor that's $20 that's 40% of 50. Then 40% of 50 goes to the farmer, which is another $20. And then farm crowd keeps 10 
dollars for its work done. So you make ten percent of the profit that comes yes. to, through your platform. On the average, you make about seven um, percent. I mean, if you look at the core numbers, it comes to maybe like yeah, 7%. For, because of the payment. And yes, stuff. Okay. yes. Why is it seven percent? Because you could have taken all those costs from the old expenses before you can then declare profit. Why didn't you do that? Um, the reason is we wanted to build trust with the farmers that were in this with you, and then we wanted our sponsors to know that we weren't um, going that route because we wanted to see the process through to make our own profit. So just to build trust. But I mean, in maturing as a business, we're considering options like that now. Um, we haven't necessarily implemented this. These are things we will consider in the future, how we can then make some money upfront. But for now, it's still that we share the profit. And so we have to do a good job to get the desired yield at the end of the harvest season. Yeah, so the business grew relatively fast. You were able to then raise money from Techstar. How did that happen or come about? So in the fourth month, we raised our first seed funding of $60,000 from Niche Capital, a local investor in Nigeria. From Rashid. Yes, Rashid. And um, he brought That was in, the first money in. That was the first money we got in, apart from the founder's money. Then after that, word went out to that. Okay, FarmCard was doing what it was doing and sponsors started getting their money back and every time a sponsor gets their money back people start going on instagram on twitter and say now i'm a farmer and i farm through farm crowd we weren't telling them to do this so we never like, oh fantastic maybe we can turn our sponsors to ambassadors for us so we started getting a lot of them to do that so it started spreading and then we started getting a lot of referrals so we grew very fast with referrals and then we also had sponsors come back and do two three times the amount we're doing this started telling a lot in the sponsorship we're generating and by the time we're now applying for the textas program i found out about textas through somebody I had worked with in Conga called Etop, who leads another platform called Cast45. So he told me that there's a guy coming to Nigeria. His name is Tyler. Uh, he wanted me to meet him. And like, you no, know, uh, I said, who's bringing him? Because that's usually my first question. I used to tell people, uh, depending on who is bringing the investor, he will showcase his own businesses to them. So there's no point me fighting my way through. So I said, who's bringing him? He said, um, yeah, someone is actually bringing him to the country, but he still wants to meet other people beyond the, that cycle. So I then tried to have a meeting with him. I got five minutes of his time. He spent maybe two minutes sleep. He was really tired so it's, a, it's funny though so when Tyler came to Nigeria and yeah. the day came actually so there was another company that brought him so a friend of mine just called me oh, can you help me pick him at the airport oh, I couldn't pick him at the airport so can you meet him at a hotel okay and he had some rough travel at the airport so, so okay. we met so I met him at the lobby of the hotel was really really tired and he was. was supposed to go out for a drink that night so couldn't do a drink so he, so he went to sleep we had dinner two or three days after and Etop was there as oh, well okay. and okay. that was the first time I met him as well okay. I met him they were about to launch Car 45 then and he was talking about it and Tyler was, was there as well so yeah. I, I can yeah. relate to that Itop is a very good friend he used yeah. to come to my place then just not too far from here and we used to talk about the idea of Cast 45 and so he was a close friend and in that regards and the day I met Tyler Itop said he just finished that meeting that dinner that dinner oh, okay so, so I then met him after the dinner so it was very late that same day that same night at, we were at the dinner okay we I'm, was 
You went, you went to my Radisson? I met him in Radisson. He finished and then came to Radisson. Okay, yes. And he came to Radisson. So I met him in Radisson. And so he was tired. I just told him about the idea. And I think what then caught him was the numbers we had that time for a startup that was at that time eight months old after we had launched effectively and how much impact. And all I was talking about, and this is what I do today. I don't talk about the money we make. I talk about the people's lives we change. And that was all I was just hitting on and how much impact it will have on people lives if we were part of a program like theirs. And by that time, were you working full-time on a business or you are still... I was full-time. You moved time. now. Okay, because you raised money. Yeah, about two months before we raised the money, I moved in fully. And then I did that because I felt like, okay, we're in a position where we should raise money. And mm-hmm. so I started leading the whole push to raise money. So I met him and finished that conversation five minutes. And he told me to apply. To apply to Texas, Texas Atlanta. Yes. So Palace Cravens was leading Texas Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah. So we did apply and I know Noticed some things that many people didn't notice. We had a Techstars Atlanta meetup two weeks ago in my office, and Michael and Rachel, that's Techstars Atlanta guys running it now. Michael and Rachel were talking to um, over 25 startups that came to our office um, in Farm Crowdy to meet with them. So when we're done with the session, and they were done and they left online, um, went offline. I then told the startup founders some of the things we did. It's interesting how investors tell us to do certain things and follow certain instructions that people just don't know how to follow instructions. And these are those very, very tiny things that I'm very detailed about that improves our chances over others when we do it exactly the way they want it done. Because when I got into Texas Atlanta, I asked them, why did you pick us? In the first interview, they said, number one, they tell people, when you apply to text us update your application on a regular basis if any new activity happens put it in that little box your application is as important as the updates you put there but people just apply and oh, i've applied to text and they are waiting for somebody to call them we we're consistently on a weekly basis oh we just added a new person to our team oh we just worked now with 1000 new builds oh we just did 2000 in sponsorship or with every week we're doing that and they said they could see for themselves the consistent the progress and then top of mind you're engaging exactly that's the biggest challenge that investors have with entrepreneur is engaging with them post investment Investment. yeah and if you demonstrate that you can do that engagement well yeah Yeah. you are top percentile of every other startups that is applying or trying to get attention of investors yes yes and that was what happened and that was in the first stage why it led us to the end and they then found out about the team and it's meeting the team every time i wanted to talk about the team i took the back seat and allowed my team to to talk before I take my own position to talk as the leader of the team. So I always try to showcase the team, show that it was beyond me. At that time, I think we were about 14 in farm crowd and they were agronomists, people that had first and second degree in economy or agric extension who were fully in the team. And then we also show them how we're working with partners. So a lot of that, all the attraction was helping us. So they talked about the team. The fact that the team also had history before the startup was an important one. And I was pretty much maybe like the connector for all the other people in the team. And then we're all full-time into it. And that was important because with the caliber of people on the team, you would expect that they would be doing one or two other things. But I was able to convince everyone to come in fully 
that let's put on our heads together to grow this. The ice and the cake was now the traction with the sponsorships we are having. And then the but now pulling everybody together to be doing this full time, how did you manage to drive with the little money that you raised? So the first thing was when I brought the guys together to join me on the project, I wasn't greedy. And it's something I've learned. I know if I need a team, I need to motivate them. Um, so I first moved the attention off me as the founder and called the initial, who I call my generals on the team, co-founders with me. So in that light, if one of my team members is going to an event and I can't attend an event, I so saw my co-founder is coming and is leading data or is leading technology. There's a the respect they have. So I motivated them with that first. Two was I gave them stick in the business, very early stake in the business. I made a couple of promises. I wasn't going to dilute their stake when investment comes. It was how, going to be, how can you do that? It was going to be my own stake. I was going to be diluted. Wow. These were things I did to motivate. And you do that? I did. Because that's hard I to did. do that. You have fixed. Okay, does that mean they have to be, you have to be topping up their own shares? Their shares remained, but because the value of the business went up. So imagine you have 5% of a business that's $600,000. And you still have 5% of the business now that's worth 1.2 million. I get it, but how do you do it? You have different class of shares. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. So I made all those promises with them. Then also in paying them salaries, they understood that we couldn't pay what they were worth. So I made promises with them that, okay, maybe we should be paying 500,000 naira a month. Or we use dollars now. Let's say we were paying $2,000 a month. Uh, we can only afford to pay you $1,000 a month. But the remaining $1,000, we will pay you that. We'll owe it on Farm Crowdy's account and pay you that when we raise money at this stage that's interesting so and then all of this i was sticking on my reputation wow and so they could trust the fact that okay even if they don't trust whether this thing succeeds or not if Oyeka says he would do it he would do it actually so, i've never heard i'm learning a lot from that that you can say okay i cannot pay you this now but i'm gonna pay you this amount that is good for you a bit but then the other the company holds you when we get a particular milestone, milestone. whether revenue or raising yes money. but then, then how do you convince investor that you now hold part of the money you're raising is back payment to your staff. Every startup has loans and debts. That's true. It's, you can also as well use the good debt of owing your people that are building the startup to the valuation that the investor is And it's actually invest. good because this is quite great because that means that when you raise money, the team are having something similar to a liquidity. In a way. In yeah, a way because yeah. it's their back started they work to they can get that kind of liquidity. Yes, yes. That, okay, yes, we, uh, we got something. We own $12,000 yes. in last 12 months. Yes. Now that we raised $1 million, I can get my $12,000. Yes. Yes. That's, that's quite good. So it excited them and it helped me keep very good hands with me. And everybody just put their back because I set goals and say, we have to hit this. I mean, right now we have goals in the company that I promised where, but I mean, I got a bottle of champagne. So inscribe everybody's name and company on a bottle of champagne. Interesting. And put it somewhere and say, if we hit this valuation by this time, based on all your efforts, we will celebrate with your own bottle of Everybody will pop their bottle of champagne. And it's just simple things like that. They're just, my bottle is there. I know what I'm aiming for. I want to pop this and celebrate that we did this. And, we, and so, so are they optimizing for valuation now? First of all, is your company profitable at the moment? Not profitable yeah. yet. And how much have you raised in total? Uh, we've done about 1.4 million. 1.4 million. So you raised that 1 million after Texter? Yeah. So what we did was the Texter's money came in, but we didn't 
let's use it, the 120. We raised extra 880 and then the 120. And that was how we arrived at 1 million and then that was the 1 million. And then you raised after that as well. Uh, we didn't actually raise. We got a grant okay. um, of 325K. Interesting. Um, an equity-free grant from GSME to continue to build our app for technical field management of farmers where we can deploy apps that technical field specialists will now be able to engage more farmers without having to replicate themselves across zones using ussd codes wow that's really good so how big is the platform now um right now we launched a mobile app that we use to draw a lot of farm followers so farm followers are those that get the same pictures and videos and updates and about um, what happens on the farm farm uh, followers yeah so there are two entry points in farm crowd you have farm sponsors who sponsor a farm and they get pictures videos updates and expect a return they can also visit the farm and meet the farmers but farm followers are those that are not investing yet but just want to see and understand what happens in the space so they end up staying around and getting educated about agriculture and then they can make an informed decision in the future about investing so it then becomes a sales funnel for us in a way so we launched that app to engage that community of um, people and we've been able to attract in the last um, four months since the app launched about 50,000 downloads on that mobile app. Interesting. Active users sits around 18,000 um, consistently active on a daily basis on the app. Checking the app and looking yep. for farms that updates, they can follow. Uh, updates, farms to follow, engagements with um, farm experts. Um, one thing we're building, which we'll launch maybe next week, is um, a forum like a Naira land for agriculture where people will now ask all the questions related to agriculture and then experts will answer them um so we're connecting them so and educating people encouraging people to go into farming to farming and the fact that they have money now as yeah. well they have yeah. access to cash to be able to do that i want to know about where the most users are coming from i know the farmers are in nigeria but the people that are investing and they're coming from nigeria majorly or diaspora or outside the continent they are 100 percent nigerians because you must have a nigerian bank account to sponsor farm on farm Did you deliberately do that yes because i'm building farm crowdy as a community model which will have nigerians sponsor nigerian farmers to grow Nigerian food for Nigerians to eat. Wouldn't you have the same issue that Conga had like we discussed earlier on? No. Very quickly, we're fine-tuning that model and then we will scale that community model into Ghana, into Kenya, where Ghanaians will sponsor Ghanaian farmers to produce Ghanaian food and Kenyans will sponsor Kenyan farmers to produce Kenyan food. That is the idea behind how we expand it. And but then you're excluding the Nigerians in diaspora who don't have the Nigerian bank account. So for Nigerians in diaspora, we have a lot of them from the UK and the US also sponsor farms. We're tying out some relationship with the likes of Flutter Wave to find ways where Nigerians without bank accounts can sponsor. But many Nigerians outside the country have bank accounts in Nigeria. And with the large chunk of people that have done sponsorship in farm crowd they have done so on the platform we also have um, bank transfer tools that can allow them to just send the money as you mean um, they don't have bank accounts and they can just convert the money and move it straight into yeah. the Nigerian account since you launched there have been lots of other platforms like yours I was in a boot camp with British Council in the last two weeks and in Abuja and Calabar and in every other boot camp there is at least two people doing something two, similar doing something similar in one way or the other um, that's good yeah. But what do you think about the future of this space? So when we launched Farm Crowdy, nobody was doing Farm Crowdy. Nobody was doing what we were doing. And then 
I knew that we we're going to get to this point where, I mean, today I, I counted 15 platforms doing the same thing we're doing. And it just reminds me of when e-commerce started. When Conga launched and Jumia launched quietly, nobody was doing what we were doing. As soon as they raised money, boom, there were over 100 startups doing the same thing. And it then speaks to the motive of why people do what they do. If you're not driven by the right reasons, you will meet a roadblock and you will not be able to surmount it. So if these startups are established for the right reasons, not everybody should focus on production or sourcing money for the farmers. There's a whole wide value chain. There's logistics, there's warehousing, there's marketing, there's exporting. Startups can decide to focus on any of these sectors in the agriculture value chain and still solve problems and create a niche for themselves. But I think it's that whole pool effect where people are seeing one startup successful why everybody wants to do it uh, it's, but it's good for the farmers if they are genuinely doing what they are supposed to do there are 38 million small scale farmers we've worked with only 3,000 and 3,088 farmers in our first 16 months with all the work we've done we cannot solve the problems for 38 million small scale farmers our goal in five years is to do it with 50,000 let somebody else do the next 50,000 and that person do, it's because good it's for the farmers problem. it's a huge problem but just going deep into the business then so how much does it cost you to acquire the sponsor or the farmers versus how much you're making from the transaction? Um, we make a net profit of around 5 to 7% of the total sponsorship that comes on each farm. But does it cost you some money to acquire the sponsors the, in and the farmers? Sponsors, right now it sits around 2 to $3 to get one sponsor to okay. sponsor $250 in and what about And what's the average transaction size for? Um, you, what we see them do is First time sponsors stay within the $250 and $500 range. 81% of them come back and sponsor the second time, doing five times that amount. So, retention and then upselling. Yes. We get all our sponsors attracted to a sponsor up to the third time. So, the minimum. Attracted they, to a particular farm or? No, just sponsoring on farm crowding. And they, they do it to the third time. So, we see. In a year? Yes, in one cycle. In one circle. So it's a very profitable business then. Now, I'm going to be rounding up this conversation by asking you a few questions, sure. uh, fire and questions. Okay. Just need straight answer to you, and then it can lead to other stuff. So what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? My biggest business pain point at the moment is having to deal with the stress of replicating yourself in many places at the same time. What do you mean by that? So the team I have today, I'm trying my best now to make sure that they can deliver on the mandate that Farm Crowdy has as much as I will deliver on the same mandate. And but you're like four co-founders. Yes, but everybody's a specialist in their own field. So, and it's in the complementary efforts that they bring to the table that makes it exciting for us. But in dealing with investors, in raising money, in public relations, in marketing, these are my own forte. And it calls for a lot of work. I used to enjoy the times I would go to the farms myself and travel with my head of operations, um, one of my co-founders, Tokwe. I will trek through farms and I'm meeting the farmers and they're singing for us or they're doing their work with joy and they have I miss those times now I've just found myself traveling and Atlanta, having, in New York trying to raise money from raise money or standing events and speaking and just trying to push the word out there that there's farm crowd here and you should sponsor farms um, maybe those are my pain points now but 
generally, I think I find myself very lucky with the team I have today in Farm Crowdy. They've been exceptionally good in every area, apart from this area where I have to deal with this yeah. myself. And um, they've been fantastic. They've been supportive. They're ready to take the ball. And so it's been good in that regards. But pain points would be just um, finding ways of making sure that there's somebody else that can do what I can do um, the same way I'll do it. Uh, maybe reducing my expectations of making people become perfectionist. I mean, I tend to, I'm, I'm so into the details, like wanting to be crystal clear, good. So that's one. Maybe the other pain point for me is the fact that you're in the sector where there's so many challenges. It's not a smooth ride. I go to countries in East Africa and I see how their government have set structures in place that makes it smooth for any entrepreneur in the agri space to thrive. Here, you almost have to build the entire marketplace yourself. That in itself is a big challenge. And as much as the government is doing what they're doing, still a lot of work that needs to be done that makes it easier maybe people that will come after us will then have an easier space to work yeah. on so infrastructure challenge yes what um, is your number one growth metric what do you check in your business to indicate that you're growing it's how many farmers we empower every day we ask ourselves that question our motto in farm is empowering farmers together and it always sits on how many farmers lives are we able to change in the number of farmers we have on the platform that is for us the success we tell ourselves that we've been able to achieve but do you have enough um, because most of the time i go to your website there's always it's all sold out so yeah the thing about being sold out is like with material starting small i'm telling you if we open up farm crowdy and we have ten thousand units we'll find sponsors to take those ten thousand units but how do we then deal with the farmers the real farmers are going to now work with that today the team is a team of 28 we have a lot of partners we work with we've worked on um, 320,000 chickens still date. We've done a combined 2,000 acres of farmland. The challenge is not you getting enough sub- uh, supply. sponsors. It's not you don't get enough supply of farmers. It's you being able to manage. The company. Yeah, it's not so a it's, problem of getting the farmers. It's not a problem of getting the sponsors. It's just the managing the which process. Which is a good thing because then you can control your growth. Exactly. You say, okay, so, we're going to exactly have more money and then we have so it's just capacity problem yes and this is why you're going to see a huge leap when we start the next farm so you're going to have a lot of units we've done some good work also to sign up more farmers our goal last year was to work with uh, 1,000 farmers we ended up working with 2,000 farmers the goal this year is to work with 4,000 farmers we may end up working with five to 6,000 farmers and we're already setting that structure in place a lot of conversations happening a lot of meetings happening and we're signing up a lot so you're going to have a lot of farm units between April, May and June, which is pretty much the planting season. And within that period, I think we will have less of a problem of sponsors coming to say they can find units to sponsor. Which book are you reading at the moment? I'm actually reading two books right now. One of them is um, How to Sell Your Startup from the Beginning. And uh, that's just a fantastic book that I'm reading. And the second one, Actually, I'm reading three. The second one is Start With Why. And the third one, um, Good to Great, Good to great. by um, Jim Collins. Yeah, Those are the books I'm reading at the moment. Apart from your business, which other business is getting you excited at the moment? Anything in real estate. So which, which particular business? Um, do you want me to say... So... An existing business yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah, I like what Fiber is doing. Yeah, I like what Fiber is doing. Although I feel their niche market is the high-end users. Um, but um, I like that model. Um, it's something exciting that um, one may be looking at soon. That's a lot of it's exciting to me. The others, uh, before Uber came into Nigeria, I always wanted something like Uber to 
exist for Nigerians. I love Gojek in Indonesia. It's a fantastic model. And I think if one can crack how to build something similar to that model here in Nigeria, that may be an opportunity. So those are two areas, but the real estate one, I like what farmers do in Nigeria today. So have you thought about the impact or the effect of what blockchain can do to the platforms like FarmCloudy by tokenizing your assets or fractionalizing it in a way that is cheaper than $300 and it's now liquid before the three months or six months. Yeah, that you we thought about that. In fact, FarmCloudy was supposed to launch with farm coins and the wallet system and with different entry points for people where we could break it into fragments and have people do things at different stages. But the roadblock we had then was issues around uh, regulation on um, um, wallet systems and pure out and out crowdfunding platforms and all of that just made us mellow down and then we had to find easier ways of entering the market without having to deal with those issues but today it's now becoming commonplace to find technologies like that disrupt um, businesses and businesses like us can take advantage of that you can have asset classes you can have portfolios you can combine farms and then turn it into something really exciting for people especially because you have different farms that have different seasons and you can play around the seasons that people get money at different times when it's one season ends it's but because you took and you can also bucket. trade as well so you exactly. can trade your, at the moment you can't trade your assets no no you can't you can trade yeah. based on okay so that, that is a good one but the other question i wanted to ask around that was regulation do you have any regulation guiding you now or is this something that you're helping the regulators to understand yes i think yes. at the moment we're just involved in the process of understanding what should actually be regulated and when we're asked questions by them we answer and it's, uh, we're called to the table to contribute if that comes up when it comes up where we always winning um the central bank has been very supportive of our work the arm of the central bank that focuses on agriculture and have been very, very supportive of what we've been doing. The central bank governor endorsed us at one point in time. The Minister of Agriculture endorsed us at another point in time. In that sense, they have given some level of support. But when it comes back to regulation and how do we deal with that, because we are very early innovators in this area, we will then be the ones that will help design that with the regulators and find better ways of making the entry interesting for people that are coming to sector. But for now, it's still blue ocean and still open field for everyone and this is why i'm a bit weary of the businesses that prop up and don't have the right intentions as long as a business like us exists and other businesses like us exist to do the right things and there's nobody crying foul play and then makes it easy for people to trust the platform and do what they need to do but where somebody does something strange and then um because they decide they need to step in and if somebody has messed something up and they now want okay so what are you guys doing and but until then we just keep doing what we're doing keep impacting keep sharing our stories and then when that time comes hopefully we're involved in the process of deciding what that should be i really do enjoy my conversation with you Thank it's you. longer than i expected but it's very very deep and very enlightening again i'm more impressed about your business than i was even though i was impressed already thank you very so, much Yika, thanks for coming to the show thanks a lot thank you Dutton.
This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. have a story or a narrative you want everyone else to hear or do you want your business to build personal connections with your customers then you should consider hosting a podcast starting a podcast is one of the best decisions i've made in my entrepreneurial journey it allowed me to meet more successful people challenge my opinions on a lot of things and grow our business significantly i think every business will become their own media company and podcasting is one of the best ways to do so that is why i'm hosting the podcast training workshop in Lagos, Nigeria on the 18th to 19th May for 15 people. It will be two days of intensive hands-on training where you'll learn everything you need to know about ideating, planning, launching, and running your own popular podcast. I'll help you cut through the confusion and walk you step-by-step through the entire process, train you on the equipment and tools you need, and show you how to promote your podcast to a wider audience. At the end of the workshop, you will join an exclusive mastermind group where I will be coaching everyone and challenge you to launch your podcast for your business within 60 days and give you all the feedback you need to have a successful one. The workshop is happening in Lagos on the 18th to 19th of May just for 15 people and there are very few spaces available. You can register to attend this via workshop.thestarter.com that is w-o-r-k-s-h-o-p dot t-h-e-s-t-a-r-t-a dot com or click on the link to this episode's show notes. I'll see you then.